October 24th, 2023. We're in Masechet Bet Six lines before the end of the Amud, just uh, three words into the line, uh, where it says, Amarav Hinena. Uh, we'll return to those words in just a moment, but I want to uh, talk about for a brief moment or two what we talked about uh, briefly yesterday. The Gemara was talking about moving a shafud shesalubo basar. You're dealing with a skewer which has some meat on it, or doesn't have meat on it, but you already skewed with it. And in such a circumstance, the Gemara said, you have to, if you want to move it, move it in a minhatsad uh, way, in an indirect fashion. Why so? What's wrong with this skewer, this shapud any longer? Of course, Rashi explained, you already used it for its purpose. Its purpose was to skew, was to roast with it, and you're done with the roasting. But still, what's the problem with moving it? Tosafot suggested we're dealing with something that doesn't have Torat Keli Alav. It's some slab of wood that you picked up, some branch or something like that. You weren't meyached, you didn't designate it as a Keli, as a utensil. And in turn, once it had its usage, which was to skew, which was to roast with it, it's done. It's now Mukse. It was never designated as something that wasn't Mukse. Rashi, alternatively and significantly, you had it for one usage. You were using it in that fashion. Rashi alternatively said that the issue we're dealing with over here is what's called muqseh mehamat mi'us, which means to say the fact that it was used for meat and grease and fats on it, it's disgusting. And as a result, you're not allowed to move it without a significant purpose for usage on Shabbat or Yom Tov. As you might recall, Tosafot, I was mentioning, have difficulty squaring this with the general halakha and opinions with regards to do we have mukseh, do we not have mukseh. But what all amounted from that conversation was, according to Rashi, who was the primary opinion on this Gemara, how, asked Jeffrey Gindi, how is it that we clear off plates from the table? The plates from, plates from the table, the pots in the kitchen, have sediment of grease, of meat, of food on them. Uh, perhaps that's mukseh mehamat mi'us as well. It's true that you can move it, but you'll have to do it shomtod, lekeren zavit. You'll have to do it in a minhatsad uh, way, in an indirect fashion. Now, ultimately speaking, the Gemara did say, since it poses a danger, because it's a skewer, well, then you could do it in the regular fashion. It's like the thorn in the public area. As long as you do it in a fashion, it's permitted. Okay, but the plates and, and pots and pans that we have don't pose a danger. Does that mean that we've all been doing it wrong in clearing or moving them in a regular fashion? So the first and, and foremost response to this is it's a Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, Dav Kof Kaf Dalet, which explicitly addresses this issue, and not per se in the context that we're talking about of Mukseh uh, Mehamat Mius, but with regards to are you allowed to move those pots and pans and plates from the table in regular fashion? And the Gemara in truth over there questions how is it that you're allowed to move it? And says the Gemara, you're allowed to move it because it's considered, what we've seen two, three times in our Masechet, a Geref Shel Re'i. A Geref Shel Re'i refers to uh, a piece of uh, dung or of excrement from an animal, from baby. And if it's in your way, although you're not allowed to place it in your way, you're allowed to move it. Which, of course, only prompts the question then, and this, I think, was really what was, what was underlying our conversation yesterday. So if that's the case, or just the words of the Gemara over there, Amale Abaye Lemor Alibadir Hanei Ke'arot, these plates, 
And the interpretation is, how do you move them? How do you move the plates that we used? It's just like a If it's something disgusting that's in the way, you're allowed to move it. But again, that only prompts the question, and this is the final uh, segment in this conversation. So if that's the case, how come you can't move the skewer? In other words, either way you slice it over here, it's either fully permitted or it's fully forbidden to move. If you're allowed to move the dishes when they have dirt and sediments of meat and so forth on them, you should be allowed to move the skewer. It doesn't need to be dangerous. It should be allowed to be moved regardless. If you're not allowed to, so then how are you allowed to move the plates and pots and pans and so forth? Rashba, in his commentary to the Gemara, as he's really addressing the Rashi and the Tosafot issue, sneaks in the following line. He writes the following, Umihu, however, Imhem babayit, if they're in your home, she'omed sham, or where you're staying, mutar letaltelan ben shaput, ben ke'arod lahotzian mishum geref shel re'i. He's very clear that our Gemara must be talking about when you're not in the regular living quarters. And as a result, that's why we questioned how and if you can move it. If you were in a regular living quarters, if your family or even just you are staying there and there's a dirty skewer out, it doesn't need to be, dirt, doesn't need to be dangerous, just like your pots and pans and plates and cups and so forth don't need to be dangerous in order to move them. He quotes the Gemara in Shabbat. So in short, just to summarize the issue, if you're in, I don't know, the butcher area, I don't know, the cutting meat area, that's when this issue really arose with regards to whether you can move it or not. If you're in your home and there's something dirty out, provided that the keli itself is a keli, it's a utensil, and the only issue is that it's disgusting, in such a circumstance it's permitted, gerev shelrei. Yeah, separate issue, separate, that's a keli shem... That's a keli shemelachto isur, which is mutar lezorech mekomo, separate issue. Says the Gemara over No. No, no, separate issue. Says the Gemara here again, six lines from the bottom. The Gemara just wrapped up our issue because we saw an opinion whose name was Rav Malkio. And says the Gemara, let's, let's take the opportunity to set matters straight. Rav Malkio made a statement in our context, and there's another rabbi who has a similar name. His name is Rav Malkaya. We know six statements with regards to these two names. Let's clarify for uh, organizational reasons. Who said what? Again, you have a vast knowledge of Talmud, of conversations, of debates, and you have these two opinions who appear six times, but you're not sure who said what. It's very significant who said what. Says the Gemara, Let me tell you, the following three are of Malkiyo. Shapud. Shapud is our Gemara. That's the situation where you use the skewer in order to roast. You can't in a regular fashion, says the Gemara, move it out. You need to be shomto leketen zavit. You need to drop it in, in a roundabout, indirect fashion, move it because of either mukzeme hamat mius or it's not torat keli alav tosafot. Number two, shefahot, we addressed yesterday, but very briefly again, the Gemara masechet ketubot and dafnuntet has the following halakha. The halakha is that in addition to the responsibilities of a husband to wife based on the ketubah, the wife has responsibilities to the husband. 
household chores, food, and so on and so forth. What if she brings in shifahot to the marriage? She brings in from her father's household uh, maidservants who are going to take care of all the household chores and activities that normally would be her responsibility. Says the Mishnah, as long as she brought in four, based on their determination, she's free. She can just take it easy and, I don't know, play cards all day. As says the Mishnah, however, Rabili Ezid disagrees. Irrespective of four or a hundred, or by extension, a million shefahot, she still needs to be involved in, at the very least, semer, the wool production, fabric uh, details for the household. Why so? When a person is, is not doing anything, it brings them to wrongful activity mindsets. You're looking outside of the house at different people and so forth. Under all circumstances, we need to make certain that each of the parties in this marriage are engaged in something constructive so that their mind and life are not free to be taken away by anything outside of them. Who does the halakha follow? Says Rav Malkayon, that's what we're establishing. The halakha is like Rabili Ezen. Make certain that even with many shifahot, the wife is involved in something. Responsibility, shi'abud. It's her, uh, it's her responsibility in the marriage. That's the next one, that's shifahot, again, maidservants. Number three, gumot. Again, the halakha accords with Rav Malkayon. What did he say and what are gumot? Gumot are indentations in the skin, but we're specifically talking about over your pubic hairs with regards to a woman. A young woman, the halakha, as we mentioned yesterday, is biblically speaking, a woman can be married, engaged, and married off by her father when she's a child, when she's young. Or she's fully in the domain for this purpose of her father. What if her father, though Aleno, passes away? Then her mother and her brothers have the ability, rabbinically speaking, to match her up with the uh, potential suitor. They decide this man's very appropriate for her. They can accept the kiddushin, they can arrange for the marriage to this other person. However, since this is rabbinic in nature, they don't have full possession, so to speak, of this young girl. They have the ability to matchmake and to set her in that direction. And it'll be binding if later or throughout she consents to it. What if she objects to it? She says at a certain age when she's still a child, I don't want this. Wrong guy for me. Bad guy, inappropriate, whatever it is. That's what's called mi'un. Mi'un lima'en in Hebrew means to object, means to say I'm not interested. She's allowed to do so, but she's only allowed to do so. Again, this is a rabbinic marriage, um, and she has the ability to block it with what's called mi'un, until or specifically only when she's a ktana, when she's still a child. How do we define when she's matured? as Eli so eloquently told us yesterday. She gets to a certain maturity age, she, can no lo- she no longer has the ability to object, to get out of this. What's that age? Well, it's the age of two pubic hairs. As says Rav Malkayo, not so fast. You don't need to per se see the hairs. As long as there's an indentation in the skin, the assumption is there were hairs, maybe they fell out. The indentation in her skin in that space shows that this was a place which was grounds where there was hair. She's already barred from doing mi'un. The significance of mi'un is, is very important. You say, what's the difference? Ultimately speaking, she'll get a divorce. Firstly, 
Maybe not. She can't force a divorce. Secondly, this obviates divorce. She doesn't need to deal with divorce. If she does miyun, she could get married to a kohen. She's completely out of this scot-free, so she'd very much like to be a katana for this if she doesn't like the guy, so she gets out of this marriage without uh, getting her hands dirty at all. Go ahead. Does it make sense that as she gets older, she gets less bound? That doesn't make sense. The idea being as... When she gets older, she's now bound to this, so to speak, on a biblical level. Until now, it was holding on on a loose hair. The parent, the mother, the brothers don't actually have power from Torah to marry her off. So they set her up. Beautiful, fantastic. She's a child. She's not actually accepting the Kiddushin as if she's an authority in this either. Say so the rabbis, so she has an easy out. Once she's older, now it's, now it's mutual. Now it's her mind's in this. Now it's something really binding. Now it got solidified based on her age that if she wants out, you need a formal way to get out. Rabbi, it's only if the brother or mother marry her off. Who else is going to marry her? Father's alive, she can't get out unless there's a gate, even if she's a young girl. So Adolfine, Akibushin, at 10 or 9, she's allowed to get out. If it's by her mother or brothers, if it's by her father, you need a gate. Even with Kiddushin, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. That's what specifically when she's below 12. All right, says the, says that, so that's the Gemara. The Gemara says those three cases, just for organizational reasons, just so you know, Rav Malkayo said those, Rav Malkiyo. The following, the next three cases are Rav Malchaya. Again, it's all just an organizational legal document in the Gemara. Here you're really seeing the Gemara is a legal text. Just the lawmakers know who said what. Bilorit. Efer mikle ugvina. Each of these are a little bit easier. Belorit is the Gemara and Mishnah and Gemara and Masechet Avodah Zarah. Makot as well. Avodah Zarah and Davkaftet says that there's, um, what do you call it, locks of hair, specific parts of the hair. Uh, the Avodah Zarah, the idolaters would have it as part of their Avodah Zarah ways. They had specific haircuts. But you're a barber who's a Jew, and in turn, you're not going to be touching his avodah zarah, his bilorit, that uh, part of his hair. Um, so what's the halakha? You're a barber. You're not going to touch it. There's a gezerad rabbanan that you're not even allowed to come within three etzba'ot, Rashi quotes it on our Gemara, three uh, finger widths which means to say they're keeping you far away from that. Who said you're not allowed to even come within three finger widths, which really means the middle of the hair, you know, you're not really touching. That is Rav Malkaya. He's the one who made that statement and said that that's the halakha. So that's what Belorit is. Efer Mikle is the following. Efer, of course, refers to ashes. Efer Mikle is a reference. This is very much Makot um, Jesse and Tafkaf Aleph or so. The Gemara talks about the Isur from the Torah of Ketovet Ka'aka. Ketovet Ka'aka is a tattoo. It's Asur to have a tattoo. It was the ways of the Emirates. You're not, we're not allowed to have tattoos. What if you have a fake tattoo? So if it's topical, uh, it's a little strange, but but what if it's internal? So the Gemara makes clear if it's Efer Mikle, which means say if it's ashes, which apparently stays a lot longer. You had a scab, you had a gash in your skin, or you made the gash in your skin, and then you threw in some ashes in order to give it the effect and the appearance as if you put ink and dye inside, which would be a real tattoo. It's nonetheless rabbinically prohibited. It looks wrong. It looks as if you have a real tattoo. That's Efer Mikle. And you might say, but it's not dye. It's not the permanent in the same respect. The Hachamim nonetheless said it's Asur. Who made that clear? Rav Malkaya. That's why that's mentioned over here. And Givina, lastly, is the Isur from Masechet Avodah Zarah 
of givinat akum. You're not allowed to daflamite. You're not allowed to have uh, cheeses that come from non-Jews. What's the issue? What are we fearing? So the Gemara has several opinions. This one, which is maybe the most authoritative, but this one is because the fear is in order to keep the, or in order to bring forth a smoothness to the, to the cheeses, the non-Jews would smear it with uh, non-kosher fats. Uh, they would take fats from a, an unkosher animal and they would smear, it doesn't matter if it's kosher, but unkosher animal and they would smear it with it. That was the fear. So there's no buying cheeses from non-Jews. That's the reason for that. Who said that? Rav Malkaya. So that was Rav Hinana's presentation of these six cases. Three Rav Malchayo, three Rav Malchaya. We can learn Avodazara and get the full laws on it. But for our purposes right now, that's what it is. Now the Gemara in its final line says, you should know, one of these cases is under dispute, is under attack. What do you mean? One of these cases may have not been Rav Malchaya or Rav Malchayo who said it. To you and me, simple people, we might say, what's the difference? Even a posek today says, what's the difference? The Gemara, this was very significant. You needed to know who said what in order to know how to judge these cases. Says the Gemara, Rav Papa Amar Matnitinu Matnita. Rav Papa says, here's how you learn it. Here's the designation. With If you want a trick to remember who said what, if it's Matnitin, if it's a statement based on a Mishnah, or matnita, or based on a beraita. In other words, of course, we're dealing throughout our learning with two basic generation gaps, uh, generations. Time of the Mishnah and beraita, that's going back some 17, 18, 1900 years. And then you're dealing with Gemara time period, 1500 years or so, 1600 years or so. So it says any of these statements which was accorded to, which was connected to a Mishnah Beraita, the easiest one was the one I told you a moment ago, uh, the Shifachot, that was debated in the Mishnah. If it's any of those sorts of issues, that's Rav Malchaya. Uh, his statements that were enduring were when they were, the, the statements and, and his statements that we know are the ones on the Mishnah, the Beraita, Shma'atata, Alternatively, if it had to do with the mahloke from the time of the Gemara, Emoraim, Rav Malchayo, Vesimanich, and the way to remember this is Matnitin Malketa. The Mishnah is like the king. That's Rav Malchaya. My Benayu, what's the difference? Ultimately speaking, almost all the cases are going to stay identical in terms of who said what. There'll be one change. Ika Benayu Shefahot. Shefahot will change. Shefahot is the case where, again, the woman brought into the marriage many maid servants. Who made the statement that halakha is like Rabili Ezer? Was it Rav Malchayo? We thought it's a moment ago. Now we're going to suggest instead it's Rav Malchaya. When he's had a statement on the spit before, that was the first statement. That's, oh, you want to know why we brought this all in? The reason this was all brought in was for the first word in Rav Hinana's statement, six lines from the top, from the bottom. Amar Rav Hinana bere de Rav Ika, Shapud. The first day was Shapud. You're calling it a spit. I called it a skewer the whole time. Why didn't you correct me on that one? Uh, so the spit, I like skewer more. Anyway, Shapud is a statement that was recorded to our Mishnah in, the, in turn, uh, not to the Mishnah, it's not in the Mishnah, in turn, it's Rav Malchayo, either according to Rav Hinana, but also as well according to Rav Papa. Okay, that's what we have with regards to the ending of this Gemara. The next Mishnah, next Mishnah brings us back to, and it's a brief Gemara, and then on to the next Mishnah, brings us back to uh, not purchasing, it's not a full purchase, but acquiring on Yom Tov food or drink that's necessary. 
Again, I need the food, I don't have it, the uh, grocer's allowed to give it to me, but not in the regular fashion. Regular fashion, the rabbi said, is inappropriate for Yom Tov. In the last Mishnah we talked about scales. Are you allowed to use uh, measuring scales? Not allowed to do so. Don't even use it in order to store your meat on it. Even if it's to keep away from the rodents, don't touch it. It's ovdin der hol. It's a weekday activity to even touch and involve yourself with a scale. Lo yomar adam you're not allowed to say to a butcher, but I need the meat. What, what should you not say in getting the meat? Shekoli bidinar basar. You can't designate, give me $10 of meat. Dinar is a, is a currency amount. So you can't say to him, I'll take $15 of meat or $100 of meat. Can't say that. You can't mention the money amount. Why not? Says Rashi, You're not allowed to mention currency in the context of taking this. That's a full uh, purchase, rabbinically speaking, prohibited. Aval, what can be done is, shohet umechalek benehem. The butcher can slaughter and divide it amongst them. Rashi, aval shohet, two lines from the bottom at the end, who belopisuk damim, don't mention the money amount, ven holkin benehem. And the people will divide. Now you might recall in Daf Kafzayin, we've explained this a little bit better. We said you'll bring a live animal, and you'll put it next to the animal which is or was slaughtered and say these are similar in terms of value. This way I have, for after Yom Tov, a way of evaluating what's being gotten. I'll look at this live one and I'll determine how much each piece of meat is worth in this, in this animal. Now, the butcher slaughtered this animal and you want a quarter of the meat and you want half of the meat and you want another quarter and that's the way we'll divide it. After Yom Tov, we'll come back and say, quarter, half, a quarter, how much was each amount, each portion. That's permitted, provided that the money amounts were not set on Yom Tov. Says the Gemara, hechi avid. What do you do if you want even less? I don't want a quarter, I don't want a half, I don't want a significant amount. I want the amount of five dollars. Come on. I want a five dollar small piece. That's not, I'm not, you're not going to be able to determine, tell me you're taking a whole animal, taking half an animal. Okay, you'll be able to work that out after Yom Tov, but I want a small amount. Rashi, hechia avid, the last line in Rashi, kesheino rotze likach kola behemaf. I don't want the whole animal. Velo mechza, velo shalish, velo ravia, not even a third, not a quarter. Ela bedinar, o bishnayim, ayomar lo, I want a few dollars of meat. What am I supposed to say? I can't have meat. I have a small family. I don't have the means for it. I just want a few pieces of meat so we have some steak at the table. Kiha de besura amre tarta upalgo tarta upalgo tarta benarash amre halaka upalgo halaka or palgu bepumbedita amre uzia upalgu uzia benahar pakod mata mahsaya amre revaa upalgo revaa. What the Gemara just do? A lot of Aramaic words. Well, well, we answered it. Because effectively, the Gemara is saying that we have words for small portions of meat. I'm not sure that... You can't do weights. You can't do weights. You can't talk about weights either. So instead, that's this. That's this. In other words, they used to have a language of the place for the amount a person or two people or whatever would eat. I don't know if they did it for Yom Tov. It was just a normal way. We don't do this any longer. We only do based on pound today. We say, give me a pound, give me 10 pounds. 
I know this, I've been to IND maybe two times in my life, but I've very traumatic experiences, but I'm familiar, that's exactly, I had to go home and come back, they know me already, the crazy rabbi, I don't, I don't know the first thing about this, but that much I do know is we do it based on pants today, there's no such thing, but once upon a time, in Sura, which was a place in Bavil, you would say Tarta, and if you wanted half of that, you would say Palgu Tarta, half of the Tarta. Again, Tarta is a word, it's not a measurement per se, it's a word for a piece of meat. Benarash, another place, Amre Halaka, that was the word for it, Upalgu Halaka, and half of that portion, Bepumbedita, another place in Babel, Amre Uzia, Upalgu Uzia, that's what they would say, they would say Uzia, and for half of it, Palgu Uzia, Benahar Pakot, another place in Babel, Umata Mahsaya, yet another place, they had similar wording for this, Amre Reva'a, Upalgu Reva'a, this Gemara reminds me. If that's the way they did it, it shouldn't be allowed. Why not? Because that wasn't a commercial language. That was a language for a piece of meat. It's not per se a commercial language. It's a language for... What's that? That's true, that doesn't answer his question. It's not because it's subjective. The explanation is, as I understand it, is it's in today's day and age, you talk about the pound, you talk about whatever, we don't have such a concept. But if there was a concept, you walked into the restaurant and you say, I want a piece of steak, and that's not commercial. I walk into my house and say, I want a piece of steak. It's not a commercial word per se, it's not Ovadin de Hope. It is ultimately going to be, but the wording and the designation is not weight related, and in turn it's permitted. Yes, sir. I suppose so. Does anyone talk like that in meat? Yes, yes, well said. Charles says it's a small piece, a medium piece, or a large piece. Again, we don't have objective measures, for you. so uh, here it's small, in that restaurant, that butcher, it's big, whatever, but that, you know, they. I don't think you, that would be okay. That's all. About the, that's explicit numbers on it. We don't have such a. I'm just saying, I'll take this one. I know it's ten dollars. You saying that may not. You saying because the numbers on it already. And it's already done. Theory. Yeah. 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 No. No. That'll be okay. That that we'll see in the next Mishnah and Gemara. If it was already measured out, you know, you'd be okay. It's more about on Yom Tov and the words you're using in order to get it. Uh, this. I don't know the answer to that question. If, if you can't tell, I know nothing about business, but I do believe that they had a way, there were smaller communities, and I, I have to imagine, but maybe I'm wrong in imagining so, they were honest about this, and keep in mind, they brought that animal that they would compare, the Gemara told us on Daf Kaf Zayin, and after Yom Tov, you would determine, is someone, ultimately speaking, not gonna get the exact price? Yes. Is it gonna be the butcher or the buyer? Probably gonna be different each time. Yeah. Even if I said that you could, both sides could manipulate this. There's no, but the butcher could manipulate it as well. This is what do you mean? I get it. 
I, I hear you. It's, it's a lesson in buying your meat before Yom Tov. But in truth, I think the reason they weren't, and the rabbis are so keen about talking about this, is because they didn't have good refrigeration. So yeah, you, you wanted it to be very fresh. Yes, but it's the measurement and the, and, and the way that you're saying it. It's not the action of it. The action will talk about it. So let's say the meat is actually cooked. But then you're going through, like we explained before, they have meals on Shabbat or whatever. Can you say, oh, the guy can give me this much? At, at a meal? At a meal. No problem. Why? Well, he's not, he's no, measuring it? No, and it's not all by the end of all. You're not saying that. Okay, I mean, that's what we have. This is the precursor. I'm told that Arabic dialects and words that they use until today, every country has different things. I took two, two semesters in Arabic in, in college, and they told me, even if you could speak this fluently when you're done, not a single Arabic t- uh, speaker will understand what you're talking about. So I said, why not? So this is academic Arabic, and then there's Syrian Arabic, and within Syrian Arabic, there's three Arabics, and there's Lebanese, and so on and so forth. The Gemara over here is saying a piece of meat all in in five different places, they had a different word for a piece of meat. Fascinating thing. All right, the next Mishnah here says, Omer Adam lehavero, a person is permitted to say to another, Maleli kelize. He's allowed to say if he wants uh, oil or he wants wine, fill for me this utensil. So he brings a utensil. He says, could you fill this for me? So here's my jar, here's my barrel. Fill this for me, please. Avalo b'midah. Next word's hard to understand. What does it mean? Have a lobimida, but not with a measurement. The Gemara, right? The Gemara, well, the Gemara will have a mahluk at exactly how to define that word, especially because the next words of Rabbi Uda are difficult. But for now, have a lobimida means something having to do with a measurement. Rashi, but Gemara mefaresh lau my pluktayo says Rashi. The Gemara will explain what does it mean have a lobimida and my pluktayo because the next words of Rabbi Uda sound identical. Rabbi Uda omed. He says, if it's a measuring utensil, well, don't fill with it. Sounds identical to hachamim. The Gemara will deal with what they're debating. Now says the Mishnah, Indeed, it happened with someone whose name was Abashaul ben Botnit. The Gemara, Rashi in the Gemara, will suggest he was a Talmud hacham. Wasn't just a grocer, he was also a scholar. He would fill up his measuring utensils, so he'd have a quart and a gallon and so forth filled from before Yom Tov of wine or oil, whatever he was selling. And then he'd give it to them in such a fashion on Yom Tov. It seems to support, well, someone, both Rabbi Uda and Hachamim, just Rabbi Uda. Well, we don't know exactly what they were debating, but at the very least, we see that he used to do something uh, similar to what was uh, being discussed. He did it before Yom Tov, but we don't know what Hakamim and Biudah were disagreeing about. Midotav means his utensils that were used for measuring. Right? So he had a utensil for the size of a gallon and a utensil for the size of a quart. Keep in mind, you walked into his store and you said, Can you fill this? with wine. This is this. I don't know the measurement. He can't measure it. So he's going to fill it up. How's he going to know what he's filling it into? He would fill his measuring cups and utensils before Yom Tov. So now he'll fill it. So the answer, the, right. So, so the answer to your question, Jesse, is clear. We're not just talking about not measuring. That we even already talked about in an earlier Mishnah. We're talking about over here, apparently, 
even without measuring, and I'm already leading on to the Gemara, you're using utensils which, generally speaking, are used for measuring. Before, but before that's what in the good case, the bad case, the case that's not okay. I walked in, I said, please fill this up. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of us. He takes his gallon measuring thing and fills it up. He wasn't doing it in order to measure. He's just using it, similar to the scale before him where you're just using it. That's something along those lines of what's going on in our Mishnah. So your question's really leading us into the Gemara and realizing there's something more than measuring going on over here. It's not don't measure. That goes without stating. We didn't need to mention that. It's that even if you're not measuring, don't use a utensil of measuring in this case. Why? Well, you could use it. You just can't use it to measure. I could, I could drink out of it. The Gemara is going to be clear. People sometimes, apparently, would drink wine out of oh, measuring it. Apparently. I mean, I think it is, but they would sometimes use both. You can use a measuring cup for the purpose of serving, but you can use it to eat from it. Potentially. Correct. All right, so give it a few minutes. Says the Mishnah, or a day. Says the Mishnah at the end, Abba Shaul Omer, this is not Abba Shaul ben Botnit, a different Abba Shaul. You should know that what we just read about Abba Shaul ben Botnit, Af Bamoed Asa Kim. And we skip the next three words, says Rashi. He would do it even on the Moed. Of course he did on the Moed. What are you talking about? No, it says Rashi, we're referring to Hol HaMoed. In other words, don't assume that what we were learning about until now is a problem of mu'ed, of using that utensil on mu'ed. I'll prove it to you. Even on hola mu'ed, when you don't have the issue of measuring, to Jesse's point, he still would measure his utensils beforehand that night. Oh, so you see clearly something else. Don't bring me a proof from Abasha Uben Botnit that you can't use the measuring utensil on Yom Tov to divvy out the wine. You can't prove that. You want to know why? Because even when it was in Yom Tov, he would be doing the same thing. He would be preparing it beforehand. I'm not telling you the halakha is wrong, but I'm telling you you can't bring it from this story. You follow? I'm trying to prove that you can't use the measuring utensils from a story with Abasha Uben Botnit. What's the story? He would fill up the utensils before Yom Tov and then hand it to them or spill it in in such a fashion. You see, there's something wrong with the measuring utensils. No, no, don't bring me a proof from that. Even on Cholomoyed, when there's no Isur of measuring, he would still do that. Hachamim omrim, Hachamim said, you want to know something? Abash Ol Ben Botni didn't only do it on the holiday that way, not only on Cholomoyed, even on weekdays, even today, even tomorrow he would do so. He would prepare it the night before in the uh, utensil. Why? Mipene misui hamidot. Mitsui hamidot limtsot really means to suck or to suck on. And as a result, the reference over here is if you had oil, explains Rashi, in the types of utensils they used, it would get stuck on the side. And so therefore, he wanted to, the people would give the utensils the night before, and he would then fill it the night before, because otherwise, if he didn't have it sitting in the utensil from some time, it would get stuck on the sides. He end up stealing from the people. They want a gallon, he'd pour it in, and some got stuck on the sides. So in other words, he can't bring, at the very least, without understanding anything more, proof for what we discussed until now from the practices of Abasha ben Botnit, because he was doing it for alternative reasons, he, or ulterior reasons, rather. He was doing it in order to not steal from the people. He was mahmir, not for reasons of Yom Tov, but for reasons of commercial uh, 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 being honest in, in that respect and making certain. So you can't prove it from there. We still need to figure out what was going on at the beginning. Amen, amen, amen.